Good evening, everyone. Hey, um, so like we said, tonight is rally field training, okay? So we kind of came up with this name. It's, a, it's still rally, but it's a little different because we want this to be somewhere where we can go a little bit deeper. Um, it's not as preachy. It's, it's definitely more of teaching, right? And in, in place of the, the kind of singing and songs, we want to actually have a practical time, um, which is going to be super awesome. I'm super pumped about that. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited tonight uh, because what um, we are talking about tonight is honestly one of my favorite things in the entire world. Um, the thing we're talking about tonight, uh, not Heather, I'm not going to say it again because Joel is going to send a text message. <laughs> For those who weren't here last week, I called my wife, my spicy Latina girlfriend, um, and a bunch of jokes pers uh, came from that, so... Um, but she is, she is great. Um, so what we're talking about tonight, it's one of my favorite things in the world. Um, honestly, I don't think anything has formed my relationship with God as much as this. And I actually don't know if there's anything um, that's physical that may be as important uh, as, as, as what we're talking about tonight. And what we're talking about tonight is the Bible, right? We're talking about the Bible. The Bible is incredible, guys. Uh, this book, all right? I need you to understand this. This book is not an ordinary book, okay? Any book you've ever owned or ever will own is not like this book, unless you obviously own the Bible. This book is different because this book is what we would call God's Word, all right? Um, this is funny. I, I was thinking about this, and I'm like, when I said that, I wrote it, and I was like, well, people are going to make duh. Of course, we all, all call it that. But I think there's something funny when... When we call the Bible God's Word, I think we tend to kind of either like, be like, oh yeah, I know what that means. And then if someone said, well, what does it mean? You'd be like, uh, I don't know. Or we kind of like over-spiritualize what maybe we think it really is. Um, and so it's, it's kind of interesting, right? Like, like, what does it mean that this is God's Word? Does it mean that God like physically wrote this book with his hand, right? Or... Or does it mean like that the whole entire Bible is like a, a dictation that, that someone just transcribed what God spoke, right? I mean, we have people in the Bible that literally say, I, Paul, wrote this letter, so is it man's word? Is it, is it God's word? Like, right, what does it actually mean when we say this is God's word? And so I want to share a story. Anyone like free books? I'm not giving you this one. Sorry. Um, this is a, a missionary biography that is very special to me. This is a guy named John Patton. Um, I just want to tell you that this is the name of the book, right? The Story of John G. Patton, or 30 Years Among South Sea Cannibals. So <laughs> this dude spent 30 years ministering to cannibals, okay? There's, I mean, some of the most incredible, beautiful stories I've ever read, but I wanted to share this one um, because I think this story really captures what we mean when we say God's Word, okay? And so he's been spending all this time, he's learned their language, he's been trying to tell them about God, and they're just not getting it, right? They stopped trying to eat him, but they're not getting his message. And then this is what it says. It says, one incident of that time was very memorable, and God turned it to a good account for higher ends. I often tell it as the miracle of the speaking bit of wood, and it has happened to the other missionaries exactly as to myself. While working at my house, I required some nail and tools. Lifting a piece of planed wood, I penciled a few words on it and requested our old chief to carry it to my wife, and she would send what I needed. In blank wonder, he innocently stared at me and said, but what do you want? I replied, the wood will tell her. He looked rather angry, thinking that I befooled him and retorted, who ever heard of wood speaking? By hard pleading, I succeeded in persuading him to go. He was amazed to see her looking at the wood and then fetching the needed materials. He brought back the bit of wood and eagerly made signs for an explanation. Chiefly, in broken tannies, I read to him the words and informed him that in the same way God spoke through, uh, to us through his book. The will of God was written there, and by and by, when he learned to read, he would hear God speaking to him from its page as Miss Patton had heard from her bit of wood. A great desire was thus awakened in the poor man's soul to see the very word of God printed in his own language. 
He helped me to learn words and master ideas with growing enthusiasm. And when my work of translating portions of Holy Scripture began, his delight was unbounded and his help was invaluable. The miracle of the speaking page was not less wonderful than that of the speaking wood. The miracle of the speaking page was not less than that of the miracle of the speaking wood. This is the essence of the Bible. This man understood in a way that he hadn't before that God is communicating in a way, right? This, these people didn't have a written language, and all of a sudden he understood that there is something uniquely powerful about something being written to you, right? And, and, it, and it actually led to this tribe ultimately coming to know Jesus. That was the breakthrough, that God was writing his message to man. This is the essence of the Bible. This is what the Bible is. The Bible reveals God to us. The Bible reveals God to us, and God chose to reveal himself through written word. Now, you see, the Bible is God's heart poured out on the page so that you and I and everyone could know him. Recently, I, uh, I, the interns were with me when I came across this question, and it really kind of challenged the way I thought, and, and the question was this, can we know God without the Bible? Can we know God without the Bible? And I really kind of had to wrestle through this because I think you might be able to make a case like, yeah, of course, like what about all the people in the Old Testament and this and, right, like there's people that can know God. And I think that could be made, but I, but I see one major glaring issue that arises from that, and it's this, okay? Without the Word of God to give us a foundation and an anchor and a place to stand, we could know God for real, but we would never be totally sure if what we knew was true. If there's nothing outside of ourselves, then our grasp on God is just what we experience. And, and listen, like, maybe you prayed and you heard God speak, and it really was Him. But what is it that you can anchor on and go, okay, I know that was him, right? You, you, you're really kind of at, at just guessing or shooting in the dark, right? Maybe God really did speak. Maybe you just had pizza last night, and it made you have really, really weird, vivid dreams, right? Like, um, I was just talking to my friend uh, Trevor, and he, was, he had to stop taking NyQuil because he said he was, like, seeing, like, colors and stuff. And, and I was like, what? Like, right? Like, but, I mean, he was like, oh, God was speaking to me. No, like, he stopped taking NyQuil, and that stopped happening, right? Um, like, how, but how do you determine that, right? Like, how do you determine that you just didn't have a NyQuil trip? <laughs> or, like, <laughs> did not mean to say that. <laughs> Here's what I mean. If there is not something objectively apart from us, then our measure and understanding of God can only ever be ourselves. Without the Bible, without what God has recorded about himself, about his deeds, our knowledge is based on what we feel, what we experience, and what we think he is like. In other words, if your experience of God, you say, well, God is like this, and I go, no, 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 God's like this, Wh who is to say that either of us is right or wrong, right? Like, if it's just what I think or what Virginia thinks and we've got nothing else, it's just a, a shot in the dark. And so, Man, it's, it's really cool. Like, I'm not disparaging our experiences. Like, those are real things, okay? But, but we need something. And God, God in his, his loving kindness has said, hey, look, like, I haven't based my revelation on dreams and visions. I haven't based my revelation on oral tradition, though that led ultimately to the written word. I haven't based my, my revelation of who I am on what Christopher thinks or what Charlie thinks, right? Like, I've based it on something apart from you. And this is why the Bible is so important. This is why, like, th this is huge, right? Like, I mean, you got to understand this. If this word is the way God chose to reveal himself, he does reveal himself in other ways, right? But I would, I would say the Bible is the chief way God chooses to reveal himself objectively apart from us, right? If this is the way God chose, would it not follow that that it might be one of the most important things for you and I to really seek to understand the Bible. Like, like, is it not of the utmost importance to say, I mean, if God, the God of the universe, who created everyone, who created you, who knows you, 
who has thoughts, who has ideas, right, who has plans, like, he, he is a certain way. Is it not important to know him rightly, not just to base it off of what, what Jace thinks, right? And so we could have gone, like, a hundred different directions tonight. I know there was someone that was like, are we going to talk about, like, the authenticity of the Bible or the canon, like, how we get? And look, I love all that stuff. Please come find me if you're interested. We're not going there tonight, right? Because what we really felt was tonight was so important was like, man, if we're going to really know God as a community, if we're really going to know God and pursue him and make him known on this campus, then we want to know who he really is. Too many people are far too willing to stake their lives on their own idea of God. Too many people have no actual clue what God is really like, but they've only believed what someone else has told them. Too many people have never even opened this book to really know God, but they've t- they, they seem to know who he is. At least they say they do. Too many people, their belief in God starts with the phrase, well, well I think God is like. Too many people are worshiping a God of their own making, a God made in their own image, and a God of their own imagination. And I'm begging you tonight, for real, guys, like, we, we can't stake our lives on what we think God is like. We need to stake our lives on who he says he is, right? We don't, we don't stake our future, well, I hope God's like this. That's, that's, that's a scary place to be, but we want to know God. We want to know the real God, and he really does reveal himself to us. He really does say, Haley, I want you to know me for who I really am. Kenzie, I want you to know me, and I've given you this love letter, this, this revelation of who I am. And so we want to understand God rightly, okay? So let's go into this. First off, I have to thank someone. I actually just said her name, Kenzie. Uh, let's go. Give it up for Kenzie. She's awesome. I told y'all to, <laughs> I told y'all to clap, but I didn't say why. Um, when we kind of were deciding on this, I like would randomly just be like, oh, I'm, I was like, hey, Kenzie, I'm so excited. I'm going to talk about this. And then she was like, yeah, but what about this? And I was like, oh, that's a good thing. And then I'd like think through it. And I'm like, okay, I've been thinking about this. She's like, yeah, but what about this? And I was like, that's a really good question. Like, and, and it was actually so good. I was never mad at her. I was so grateful because it was like sharpening and helping me hone um, really what I want to say tonight. So for real, Kenzie, thank you. Like, I don't think what I'm sharing tonight would be what it is without our conversation. So this is why we need friends, okay? For real. We get to know God better through our friends. So probably the thing that I was helped with the most was, was the next thing I'm going to say, if you get nothing else tonight, Please get this. It's the first blank on your thing, okay? Please don't miss this. Write it down. Put a bunch of stars next to it. If you don't have a pencil, I'm so sorry. I should have said something. Oh, you need a piece of paper. Here you go, bro. Let's go. Oh, Nathan, too. I'm sorry. Here you go. Look at you guys, studious. Okay, if you get nothing else, don't miss this. Unless Grace already put it up. She didn't. The Bible is objectively true but we cannot help but read it subjectively. The Bible is objectively true, but we cannot help but read it subjectively. And this, you okay there? (laughs) And this should ultimately lead us to faith and humility. The Bible is objectively true, but we cannot help but read it subjectively. And this should ultimately lead us to faith and humility. Now, I won't spend too long on the first part, um, but, but, but suffice it to say, look, guys, every religion and every worldview that has ever existed believes that they have the objective truth, okay? Islam thinks it has the objective truth. Atheism thinks it has objective truth. Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, secularism, Marxism, every worldview, every religion believes truthfully that it has objective, real truth. And the key word is believes. They believe it, okay? And, and Christianity is no different. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying that all these are the same. I'm not saying Christianity is just the same as all of these. What I'm trying to point out is that every worldview believes is a matter of faith that what they have 
is really the right thing, okay? And so, um, at the end of the day, Christianity claims it has objective truth. Truth that is true regardless of whether you believe it or not. Truth that changes you and sets you free. Truth that transcends nations and cultures. And what I'm saying is that that truth, it does require a measure of faith. And um, I've talked to some Christians, and it seems like in the past couple of years, I've talked to some Christians that, for whatever reason, almost like seem upset that like faith has to be a part of their faith. I, I know that sounds silly, but but for real, like like they want, they just want like I just want the cold hard facts. I just want to believe. Just give me the list. I just want that. And it's like they disparage the fact that their faith requires faith. Like and and listen, it's not blind faith. One of my one of my authors that I've been reading recently, he put it so well. He says this. Faith indicates an acceptance, but it need not be a leap of faith, as many theologians suggest. Cold understanding alone will not save men, but it is by an accepting reliance or faith based on understanding of God that we come into a right relationship with him. The Bible is objectively true. I believe that with everything in me. And this is not a blind leap into the dark. This is not just like, oh, well, you know, it's true because it says it's true. Like, no, like that, that never convinces anyone, right? There is tried, tested, there's experiences, there's all these things that come up under history, science, nature, right? Like all these things start coming up. But at a certain point, we just, we, we have all of this, a reasoned, full, right reality. But at a certain point, we just say, and yet, God, I just trust that this is you, that we, we are forced into this place of, of faith for real, right? And, and, and that, yeah, for whatever reason, there seems to be some tension, and it's like, well, you say it's objectively true, but then you can't absolutely undeni- undeniably prove it. Well, that's, that's part of faith. Like, an atheist can't prove it, just as a Hindu, just as a, like, at a certain point, faith comes in. And so then that's the first reality. We must understand that the Bible is true, and that leads us to faith, okay? The second reality, the thing that we need to understand is that when we read the Bible, we cannot help but read it subjectively. And what I mean by this is that we cannot help but read the Bible through our own lens or the lens of someone else, okay? Um, Now, does this mean that we can't know truth? Does this mean that we have to question everything that we've ever learned about God? Does this mean that reading our Bible, we're always doomed to just never really get it right? Um, Does this mean that we can't know objective truth? Is it only just like, well, I just have have to hope that I'm right, right? Is the Bible actually true, but when we read it through our own lens, right? If the Bible is actually true, but we read it through our own lens, can we ever really get it right? Why doesn't God just give us everything outright? Why can't it be clearer? Why can't it be simpler? Why is there so much disagreement on things that seem so plain? What if I get it wrong? These are real questions. These are hard questions. But I think God allows them, and maybe even wants them, to push us to that second place of humility. To never come before the Word of God and go, I know best. I, I Virginia, know exactly what God meant. Ooh, that's kind of scary, right? God wants us to come in humility before Him and reverence and say, look, God, I understand that when I read this, I'm coming with a subjective experience. And I want to place that before you and do the best that I can to really grab what you're actually trying to say and not just what I think you're trying to say. I believe we can know real objective truth, but it's going to take real humility. The Bible says in Proverbs 25, 2, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to search them out. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. God says in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And God himself says in Isaiah 1, 18, come now. And let us reason together. God wants us to search him out. God wants us to know him and to be known by him. 
He enjoys our pursuit of him. It's actually something that he longs for. That's, I love that. The glory of God to conceal a matter. God actually enjoys hiding things because he wants to know that you want him. That, that's different, right? Like, God wants you to want him, not out of a desperation or an insecurity, but he knows that he's the best thing for you. And our hearts know that too. He wants us, but we must do this in humility. We, we have limitations when we read the Bible, and we need to understand that, okay? If we, if we don't, if we just want to rebel against that and say, well, I know best, we're going to miss it, okay? But if we understand from the outset that we have limitations, then we can actually move forward towards understanding who God really is and what's really objectively true. So I need some honesty here. Who in this room has never in their life bench-pressed. Okay. Awesome. All right, Kayla, you're my example. Do you know what bench-pressing is? Okay, good thing. She knows what it is. If you took a shot in the dark, how much do you think you could bench-press? Just, you've never done it before. Just, just pick a number. Abby, you can help her. Just give her an estimate. No, Abby, next to her. All right, what's your number? Just pick a number. 50 pounds. Okay, she says 50 pounds. All right, now you guys can help me. What, what will happen? What will happen if Kayla goes for her first time, Abby shows her how to do it, and she does 50 pounds, and it's like, it's like nothing. What's going to happen if it's not, it's not like, it's way too light? What, what's going to happen? Well, she, before that. No, she's just not going to get a workout. Like, it's going to be, it's, it's like, oh. You know, she starts doing this, and you're like, she's like, wait a second, this isn't right. Now, what if, what if Kayla said, like, 300 pounds? What's going to happen? She's going to break her sternum. And Abby's going to be like, hey, guys, help. Like, she's dying, right? Okay. Now, where is someone in the room who bench presses regularly? Like, you would say, okay, Luke. We're going to go with Luke. Luke, what's your, what's your, what's your PR? 330. Let's go, bro. 330. Good God. Well, that's fine. But, okay, question. So that's your PR. What would happen if you go into the gym tomorrow and you put 330 on as your first thing? What's going to happen? You're going to crush your neck. It's like you don't do that, right? What do you do instead? How do you get up to, how, how do you get to 330? Yeah. Sweet. So you start, you know what you can get to, but you start, you limit yourself, right? Okay, so when it comes to reading the Bible, we want to be people who know our limitation, right? I, if we don't know our limitations, then we're going to be like Kayla. And we will either be doing so little, or they're going to be doing so little, right? I mean, think about this in the Bible. We're gonna, if, if we don't know our limitations, we either do so little that when we spend time with God, we get literally nothing from it. We're like living off of the verse of the day. Or we're going to be doing so much that we're actually going to be detrimentally hurting our understanding of God because we're biting off way more than we can chew. We want to be like Luke instead. And we want to build our understanding of God properly. And then from that good foundation, we keep building up and building up. We understand our limitations, and then we build from there. Does that make sense? Right? So what are the limitations we have when we read the Bible? There's really just one overarching one, okay? Uh-oh. There's one big one. This is the day of uh, knocking these things over. Um, when we read the Bible, okay, there, this is the one. When we read the Bible, you will always read it through some interpretation. This is an inescapable reality, okay? I was saying earlier, we, Kenzie and I had a great conversation. It's like, well, what about, like, the simple reading of the gospel? And that is, like, a truly good thing. And there are times where, like, reason and logic help us with that. But, but a lot of times you can put, like, ten people in a room and say, read this verse. What's the simple reading of that? And you might get ten different answers. 
And you're like, well, what the heck? Like, what is the simple reading, right? And it, and it doesn't, that's actually not a fault of the Bible, okay? Some people think that's a fault of the Bible. That's, that's actually a limitation that we have. We're reading it through some interpretation. So what I want to do is I want to go through some of these limitations, right? And, and the, these interpretation methods, okay? And I'm not saying that any of these are bad, okay? Every one of these things is going to be great. You're, they're going to be in front of you on your paper. And you're going to fill them in. Every one of these things is good, but in isolation is where we have danger, okay? In isolation is where we have danger, but when we bring them into harmony and unity, as many of these interpretation methods as we can, we approach this objective truth of God, okay? And so here's, here's what they are. Follow along, fill them out. The first one is personal interpretations. This is the most common. This is, you get up in the morning, and you read the Bible, and then you go, man, this is what it meant. And this is kind of going back to that first thing. Maybe you're right. Booyah, let's go. Maybe you're really wrong. Like, there are some people that it's like, we read the Bible, and then it's like, so what do you think that meant? And they say it, and it's like, oh, gosh, like, I don't even know how you got to that, right? Like, it's great. We might get it right. We might not. But this is the most common way. It's just I open the Bible, I read it, and I kind of walk away with what my thoughts were, right? The second thing would be family and friends, this is your mom, your dad, your grandparents, your siblings, your aunt, your uncle. Oh, growing up, my uncle always told me that when we go to heaven, we get angel wings. Like, okay, that's nowhere in the Bible, right? But maybe you also had a godly mom or a dad. Maybe you also had a godly grandparent or a godly uncle that really did raise you up in truth, right? Like, you, you can kind of see how you might know something or think something about God because of these people. Um, the next one, your pastor right? This is like the pastor you've grown up with, or when you go home, or maybe you go to a church here in, in um, Morgantown, right? Look, your pastor, I really do believe in the anointing of God. I believe that if your pastor is your pastor, they have the anointing of God. Whether they're good or bad at what they do, the anointing of God is on them to lead, okay? Whether they deserve it or not. And, and they, they have a place to speak. They have a God-entrusted place to speak, Right? And so, man, I, I pray for your pastor that he really is hearing from God and that you're being raised up. But, but just because our pastor says something doesn't make it true, right? We, it, it could be, but we're kind of coming through. So you're seeing kind of a trend. These first ones are a lot more like people, right? The next one would be authors and preachers, right? These are the books you read. These are the, the, the sermons you listen to, the podcasts that you listen to, um, and one of the cool things, one of the reasons why I just say throw out, like, why we read these old dead guys, right? There's something special about someone, sounds weird, there's something special about someone that's passed away that walked faithfully with God, and at the end of their life, there was no scandal, there was no, wow, they were, uh, they were faking the whole time, right? So there's, there's a weight that we can add to that, right? And I'm not saying don't listen to people today, but, but we learn from these guys, right? Um, and so, we're, we're, we're taking other people's interpretations, right? And we're starting to see, okay, does, does what this guy, that I, this book I'm reading also match up with what my pastor says and then maybe my grandpa? And you start to kind of see either resonance or discord, right? The next one, theologians and scholars, right? The, the guys who get paid. They're the ones who write the big fat books, right? And they use words like transubstantiation and premillennialism and... Uh, I don't know, all the big words that don't make any sense, right? Like hypostatic union. Um, these guys are the experts, right? And so we, we have like a, our culture right now is the like, they're the expert, just trust them, right? And, and there is real value to trusting someone who's given 12, 15, 25 years of study. There's a deep value when these guys study the Hebrew and the Greek. I, don't, I haven't spent 25 years studying Greek, and yet I don't base my entirety of truth just on what I, I can give a level of trust, right? Um, moving away from people into some stuff, church tradition, okay? Church tradition. This is something that um, I think a lot of people just think like, oh, that's a Catholic thing. Like, Catholics rely on tradition. No, like, we really do rely on traditions. These are, these are valuable things, often rooted in Scripture. Maybe they've gotten changed over time. Maybe some of them really have gotten corrupted. But, but there is a value to church tradition. Um, but the, the one after that, church history. 
church history. This is really important, right? What did the disciples of Jesus' disciples teach? That'll tell you a lot about what's true, right? When we study that first three or so hundred years before, before the church was kind of like officially stated and, and made like an official entity, when, when the early church was being persecuted and they were dying for the things they preached and believed, what was it that was the, the direct lineage? There's real value to Jesus' disciples, disciples, disciples were teaching, right? That can help us come to know truth. World history is another one. Does history line up with what the Bible says? Is it contradictory? Do, do the nations that the Bible talk about, is there even any really world history about that? I'm, I'm not going to say it. Um, one of the beautiful things about the Bible is that every time someone's like, well, yeah, the Bible doesn't, like, there's no real historical evidence that Pontius Pilate was real. And then, like, ten years later, and it kind of has its time to fester, and people will be like, yeah, the Bible's wrong because there's one fact that we haven't found. And then it's like, shows up that there's, like, Pontius Pilate's name inscribed, and it's, like, the same year, and you're just like, oh, oops. <laughs> you know, like, like, God is faithful to prove himself through natural world history, right? And does that help us interpret the Bible rightly? Does, does history accord with it? The next one, nature and conscience. This is like outside, like when you see the sunset and you see the beautiful red leaves or, or your conscience, right? So Romans 1.20 says that, for, um, that no one is faultless, no one is guiltless, no one is without excuse because they've seen God in nature, right? And then Romans 2.15 tells us that the law of God is written on every man's heart and that even people who don't know God can obey or disobey the laws, right? That, that, na that nature and conscience can help us when we go, man, I really, whether you ever heard the Bible or not, you go, man, I really shouldn't have lied. I shouldn't have done this thing. Like that's, that actually attests and helps us understand that, man, the Bible really is true. It speaks about these things. I didn't even know it and I learned it. I mean, you're going to, as you read the Bible, you're going to read something and go, that's always been there. Like, what the heck? I've always known that's right, or I've always known that's wrong. That was God attesting to it, right? The next one is the sciences. Is science undermined by the Bible, or does it coincide with the Bible, right? Um, most of the, like, God fills in the holes theories end up not being true. One thing we've got to understand about the Bible is it's not a science textbook, okay? Um, it's, not, it's not trying to tell you but this was funny. One of our pastor friends was the other day. He was like, yeah, like, it was like, a, you know, in the past 50, 100 years that evolutionary biologists were like, yeah, we've kind of determined that we came from, like, mud. And then he was just like, I mean, God said a long time ago that we were formed from the dust. Like, you guys are just catching up, right? Like, like now, what I'm not arguing for or against, but it's just funny that it's like it took secularism all this time to come to the same conclusion that God said a long time ago right? Like, like, does science contradict or not? Does it come up under? And I'm talking like all the sciences, biology, geology, chemistry, astronomy, physics, psychology, immunology, like everything you can think of. Are they in contradiction or do they support what God is trying to say? The next one, reason and logic. Does what I believe about God, does what I believe about the Bible actually make sense? Or am I believing something that is completely contradictory? Mike and I met with a, a friend today, and we were talking about, like, the mysteries in the Bible. But the biblical idea of mystery is not something unknowable. It's something that you can know, but it's so infinitely deep you can't know it all. Right? And so it, it, are we believing in something that is just so absurd, it's illogical? Or, or can we use our reason and logic to kind of actually go, oh, wait a second, like, the Bible's coherent, it's intelligible. Um, imagination is the next one. I put a caveat carefully. When we read the Bible, we can use our imagination to, to experience, quote-unquote, experience. We can, we can, God gave us the faculty of imagination to help us to kind of, okay, what would it be like to walk a dusty street in Jerusalem? What would it be like to be a Pharisee getting ripped apart by Jesus? Like Heather was, this today was talking about uh, Matthew 15, and they like, I mean, it says they like left Jerusalem to go to the city, and they came with the dumbest question in the world. Like it was like, well, why do your disciples wash their hands? And then Jesus like instantly is like, well, why do you reject the law of God for the traditions? And it's like, 
These guys probably spent like 10 hours coming up with the best like question, gotcha question, and then in like a second, Jesus is like, yeah, no, right? Like, you can, but put yourself in that situation. What's it like to be like, oh, crap, like I got caught, right? Like, you start to experience the Bible, and, and it helps you to be like, is this even something I can imagine, right? Um, is, this, is this something I can use? Uh, this, these last few are super, much more technical. Um, I think they have a significant amount of weight. I'm going to spell this out for you. I'm going to say it. Exegesis, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S, leads to hermeneutics. And that's H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C-S. Big words, okay? What they mean in simple is this. Exegesis is what did it mean to the original hearers and hermeneutics is now what does it mean to me knowing that, okay? This is one of the most fundamental realities of studying the Bible. The Bible cannot mean something to you that it didn't mean to the original audience, okay? Now, God might speak to you and you might feel good, but, but when we're trying to understand what's true, it can't mean something to you that it didn't mean to the original hearers. The next one is the original languages. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. Um, just kind of quick, you know, understanding of this. When we say the Bible is inspired, the inspired word of God for the Old Testament is the Hebrew language. So your English Bible, while real and true, the, ins- the way God chose to reveal himself was through Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek for the New Testament. So you don't have to be a Greek scholar. There's a great website called Blue Letter Bible. Write that down. Blue Letter Bible. B-L-B. Bulb. Um, <laughs> you can go and look that up. You can study the, the actual original language that this was in, right? Um, the, the last two, leading of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us that, that we will be led by the Holy Spirit into all truth. There is a place for God to reveal himself supernaturally. And, and you'll see this. This is those moments where it's like, oh, wow. I can't live the same. Right? Like, when, when the reality of the Bible impresses on your heart in a way where it's like, I can never live the same. The leading of the Holy Spirit. And then the final one, I would argue maybe the most important of them all, is let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let the Bible speak for itself. Let the Bible speak against itself. Not in, not in the negative sense, but don't take a verse in isolation and say this is everything. We, we let the Bible speak of itself. We let it interpret itself. So I know that's a lot. I said it before. None of these are bad, right? They're not bad. But, but on their own, it's easy to get a wrong view of God. But as we bring them together, as we seek to bring them into unity and cohesion— Right? Science and history and reason and scripture against scripture and what, what we're thinking and what our friends are thinking and we're talking and, and all these things, right? We start to come to this fuller reality and we go, okay, I'm seeing, I'm seeing what God is trying to say. Does that make sense? Like, like this is a big deal. We, we, we have limitations, but when we know them and we see them, then we come to God in humility and we say, God, this is, this is my limitation, but you're bigger than it. And guys, it, it look, <laughs> it's the glory of God to conceal the matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. I think some of us just want it to be easy, but that's not the way God is. And as you read the book, as you read his word, you actually will see that everywhere. He desires people who want to come after him. We're, we're not pe- meant to just sit and him drop it in our lap. He's not a gumball machine. God wants us to come to him. So I don't want to just leave you with this big list, but no practical examples. So if y'all are cool with it, I'm just going to do like rapid fire. Like I just want to show you all a few passages in the Bible, how we can kind of like bring a cohesion from a bunch of these. Is that cool? So I told you all to bring your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we have like six or eight back in the back. That it, if you literally don't own a Bible, you take it and you write your name in it. It's yours, okay? Like, you don't borrow it. It's yours. Um, if you do have one and you forgot it, you can still go borrow one or just write, read it on your phone. But um, the first one we're going to do, 
go to Jeremiah. It's kind of just a little bit after the middle. Jeremiah 29. Some of y'all know where I'm going after this. It's your favorite verse. Jeremiah 29.11. Woo! All right. Jeremiah 29.11. It's everyone's favorite Instagram post. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Amen. We can go home. Man. That's good. (laughs) What do people usually say this verse means? What what is it like? Huh? Does anyone need a Bible? Christopher's asking. Okay. What'd you say, Lauren? Yeah, God has a plan for me. He's got everything mapped out, right? Okay. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. Let's look at exegesis. What is going on in the situation, right? Everyone likes to isolate that passage, and they go, oh, I love this. Verse 4 and verse 14 tells us. Verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I, God, I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then verse 14, God speaking again. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to a place from where I carried you into exile. Guys, When we let Scripture interpret itself, we see not only from here, looking at the greater context, but we we see throughout the the whole story of the Old Testament that Israel was completely and utterly disobedient. And God, for about 400 years, said, stop, or I'm going to do this. Stop, or I'm going to do this. And then finally he said, all right, I'm going to do this. And he he sends them into exile. They get their whole temple. They're ripped out of their homes. They're sent across the desert to a land that's not their own. And they're in exile. And and God says, I did this. I did this to you. I caused you this pain. I caused you this grief because you wouldn't listen. So it's ultimately on you. But I brought you out. And then he says, but I do have plans for you. I'm not going to forget you. I'm going to bring you back. And it actually says in this verse, he says for 70 years. Or in in this passage, the greater passage, it says for 70 years they would be in exile. And then he would bring them back. And so, listen. The exegesis and the logic, we see God is punishing them. But he's saying, I won't forget you. And then, I, and then I have something for you after your punishment. This has nothing to do with, I know all of your future plans. It's just saying, look, in the situation you're in, you have not been forgotten. This is your own making. And you deserve to stay in exile. But I love you, and I still have plans for you. I want to do something with you. That's totally different. That's totally different than what we think it is. But that's powerful, man. Like, there are times we've made a mess of our own life. And God says, Evan, you've made a mess, but I still have something I want. And I couldn't see your eyes. I still want something. I still have plans to do something good. You messed up what I was doing, but I still have something good for you. That is a different thing. Can it mean to us what it did not mean to the original hearers, right? Another one. Let's go to John 21. John 21, verses 4 through 19. I'm just going to give you the synopsis. We're not going to read it all. It's a lot of verses. But John 21. It's towards the back. Fourth gospel. Okay, so John 21, we've got um, that Jesus is risen from the dead. The disciples haven't, they've been struggling to believe that he's really there. They've seen him. Peter is kind of discouraged and says, I'm going fishing. And then like six other guys are like, sure, we'll go too, right? And they're fishing, and, and then Jesus appears to them, and he calls them into the shore, and then he has this intimate conversation with Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, the second time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Tend to my sheep. And then the third time he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. It says he was grieved that Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And we read that, and we're like, man, like, Peter denied him three times, and Jesus is restoring him three times. But I want you to hear this. If you go to the original Greek, okay, go to that blue letter Bible, you'll see this. Jesus says, Peter, do you agape love me, and unselfish for my highest good? And Peter responds, Jesus, I phileo love you. I love you like a brother. I like you. 
And then he says, feed my sheep. And then Jesus says the second time, Peter, do you agape unselfishly love me? And then Peter says, Lord, I phileo, I like you. You're my friend. Of course I love you. And then Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo love me? And it says, Peter was grieved in his heart. He says, of course, Lord, you know I phileo love you. And what Jesus seems to be saying is, Peter, do you even like me? You, you clearly don't love me in this highest love form. Do you even really love me in this, like, brotherly way? And then Jesus goes and he tells, right, so you see the original Greek gives a different context, a greater context to what Jesus is trying to say. And then Jesus gives this little thing, this little verb, and he, he kind of says, you know, you know, you'll have your arms stretched out. You go where you don't want to go. Someone will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus spoke of the way that Peter would glorify God. In church history, if you go and study church history, church history about how Peter died, you see that everything Jesus said was true. The Bible doesn't record it, but you see from church history that Peter was taken and bound and crucified upside down like his, not like his master. He didn't want to die in the same way as Jesus, but he was crucified. He was bound. He had his clothes taken from just like Jesus said. You start to see that history and church history and the, and the, and the original languages begin to bring the Bible to a deeper understanding. The next one, uh, 1 John, just flip over a, a little bit. It's almost at the back of the Bible. 1 John 1 8. This one's a hot one, okay? This one's, this one's spicy. Sorry, I'm struggling to get it open. It's too close to the end. There we go. 1 John 1, verse 8. This is what it says. For if, nope, that's 2 Peter. Sorry. Flip too far. 1 John 1 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This is one of those where we often um, isolate a verse and we say, well, this, look, this means that you, well, I'm just doomed to always sin. I, I'm a sinner. That's just the way I am. I can never, I can never get over my addiction. I can never get over my sadness. I'm just, it's just the way it is, right? But look, when we go and read the greater context, I look, like you read, it says that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So you're kind of like, oh, okay, like I see this. And then ver chapter two, verse one, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, not when you sin, if you sin, we do have an advocate. John is literally saying, hey, look, uh, and I need us to understand this. This is kind of the logic and the reasoning, okay? At no point has anyone in, ever in history besides Jesus been able to say, I am perfect. I've never sinned. So when when we, uh, when a lot of times when we say, oh, I'm not perfect, well, yeah, of course, that's true. No one's ever not sinned. But the Bible, I mean, Jesus calls us to holiness. Jesus calls us to be holy like his Father. He calls us to be perfect like his Father. Now, Perfect, when Jesus is saying it, isn't live a life where you've never sinned. That's, that's, that's not possible. But he is saying, hey, from here on, I mean, John literally says that. I write this so that you will not sin. I want you to understand, sure, you have messed up, but you don't have to anymore. You don't have to anymore. The power of Jesus has set you free from the bondage and the penalty of sin. You don't have to anymore. One more. One more. Uh, let's go to Esther. It's my favorite Old Testament book. Flip back. It's uh, before the Psalms. It's a little bit before the Psalms. I love Esther. If my friends didn't have an Emma and an Esther, I would want to name, uh, if I had another daughter, I would want to name her Esther, but I won't. It look like I'm copying them. Esther verses 1 and 2. This is quick. I showed the interns this. They freaked out. Uh, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, Son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. All the royal officials at the knight's gate, the king's gate, knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai, who we know is a Jew, would not kneel down or pray to pay honor to him. The Bible says that his name is Haman the Agagite. That's a weird name, Agagite. If you go back to 1 Samuel 
chapter 15. You don't need to right now, but just write down. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 20. Theologians and scholars, okay? This is bringing in some more. This is bringing in Bible interpreting itself, going back. This is going back to the, the history of the Bible and history. It says that Saul, the king, was supposed to wipe out his people, and the king's name was Agag, and he didn't kill him. And people from, from Agag's army got away, and Agag's family got away. And ultimately, Agag does get killed, but most scholars and theologians believe that Haman the Agagite is a descendant of this wicked king that Saul was commanded to kill, but didn't. And so a generational bitterness transcends through time up to this man, Haman. And you actually see in the story, he goes and boasts. He's like, I got everything. I'm second in command. I've been invited to the queen. I have money. I have power. I have everything this life could offer. And I am not happy because that Jew will not pay honor to me. And you're like, what the heck, bro? It's just get over it. But there is something so deeply rooted in his heart. And we start to see that there are generational curses and generational things that God wants to break over people. And it leads to the point where literally the whole entire Jewish people are at, at, at I'm facing genocide, right? And you start to see the Bible when you let it interpret itself, when you go and look at history, when you, when you look at what the people who studied it before us have said, you start to get a fuller picture. I know we flew through a bunch of those, but I hope you're beginning to see that how you read the Bible with what interpretations you have really can help affect what you're, what, what you're understanding. And so the Bible, it's not just a book that informs us about God. It's a book that reveals God to us. And in turn, he transforms us through what he says about himself. We don't want to settle for the cheap stuff. We don't want to settle for the weights that aren't going to grow our spiritual muscles. We don't want to settle for hollow thoughts that don't transform us. But we want the real God. We want the real Jesus who shows us what he's like, who shows us what he's like. So now it's your turn, okay? Now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. Okay, I want you guys to write these down, all right? We're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're actually going to go into a time where we get to, I'm going to give you all some passages, and I'm going to get you all in some groups, and we're going we're gonna to use some of this stuff. We're going to start to study. You're not going to get through it all. That's fine. I'm going to give you like 15 or 20 minutes, okay? So you're not going to get it all. You're not going to be a Bible scholar after today, okay? But I want us to start using these things and approaching them. But I want to give you just, just, I think, maybe the best order, okay? So the first thing is ask questions. Well, actually, I really say the first thing is read it, okay? I didn't write that down. Read the, read, read the Bible, right? Read what you're looking at. But then ask questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Those are the questions you learned as a five-year-old, right? They are still the best questions to ask. Who is even who is it who who is the subject of what I'm reading? What is going on? When did this take place? Right? Where did this take place? Sometimes when you like understand like oh they traveled from here to here and you're like that's like 400 miles. That wasn't a walk down the street, you know? Like that changes how you understand the Bible. Why? Why were the people saying what they said? Why did Jesus respond this way and how? How, how is this possible? How is this supposed to matter, right? Like going through that. Hey, you can use Google. I use Google all the time. I would say with a grain of salt, um, sometimes people say stuff and you're like, that is stupid, right? Like Reddit may not be the best place when you Google, like, but, but you, you use it sparingly. Like they're, okay, literally just like where, you know, or where was... Athens in, you know, Bible times. Like, is it the same Athens we have today, or is it different? Like, you can do that kind of stuff. The second thing, use your imagination, okay? I love this. Again, sparingly, don't, don't go so far with it, but put yourself in the story. Put yourself, what would it have been like to receive this letter from Paul? What would it have been like to, to, to be one of the people that's, like, just sitting there watching Jesus, like, scold the Pharisees, you know? What would it have been like to be the Pharisees being scolded? Like, That'll help you kind of get a full picture, right? The third thing, write down your observations. Write down your observations. That's a good thing, right? Write down what you're seeing, right? Maybe it's not right, but that's okay. Start somewhere. Like, start right. This is what I see. This is what I think. And then don't stop there. That's number four. Don't, all caps, don't stop there. This is where most people do stop. 
they, they, they read the Bible, they think about it, they ask questions, they write down their thoughts, and then they go on their merry way. And what you see is that you're still stuck at, well, this is just what Sean thinks the Bible means. This is what Grace thinks the Bible means. Maybe you're right, but maybe you're not. We don't want to stake our life just on what we think, right? So don't stop there. Number five, apply as many interpretation methods as possible. It does take work. But man, those, those verses I read earlier, Proverbs 25, 2, Matthew 7, 7, Jeremiah 29, 13, Isaiah 1, 8. God wants people who want him and who want to know him. The sixth thing, share what you have learned. Share what you learned. Um, can you put that little picture up? This little pyramid, this is one of my favorite people. Uh, he showed this. It's not his thing, but this is called the learning pyramid. So when you listen to something, right, when you listen to a podcast, you retain about 5% of what you learned. Um, when you read something, so when you read the Bible, you retain about 10%. When you listen and read, 20%. When you demonstrate, when you start to kind of like try and write it out, right, 30%. When you discuss, when you start talking with people, you start to retain about 50% of what you've learned. When you apply, when you live out what it is that you're reading, you retain about 75%. And then when you teach, you retain about 90%. Ken, I, I imagine you would probably agree completely. When he teaches, man, anyone who's ever taught, you gain infinitely more than anyone. <laughs> Any one of you in this room is missing out on all that I learned. And I'm not saying that to brag, but when you teach, man, and then it starts to become so real because you, you identify with it in a way. So, right? So, we want to go through that. We want to share our thoughts. We want to discuss with people. We want to we even be say, so bold as to say, I, I want to take a chance and teach this. And you're going to see, man, what you learn is going to retain in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. And then finally, be firm in your beliefs, but be humble enough to still learn. I'm not going to do that quote, Grace, so don't put it up. I just want to finish with this story, and then we're going to get into it together. Um, do you guys know who D.L. Moody is? Does anyone know who he is? Okay, D.L. Moody was an American evangelist. He had uh, well over a million people that were converted to the Lord through his ministry, and most of them remained faithful to Jesus to the very end, right? That's a hard thing. A lot of evangelists, they go, they get people saved. They don't have any infrastructure. Those people fall off, right? But this man was a soul winner, if there ever was one. And so there's this, this incredible story where he is preaching this sermon at this like, massive crowd. And I mean, hundreds of people are like giving their life to the Lord. Hundreds of people are repenting. And I mean, literally, like, I've been doing this and like giving up their sin, throwing their alcohol bottles away, like all of this stuff, right? This crazy, like, God is clearly working through this message. And the message, it's over and he's, sweet old lady comes up to him and she says, you know, Brother Moody, like, I love you in the Lord and, you know, you were preaching from this passage and, and I just want to, I want to show you, you know, I know you preach from here, but the Bible says here this and it says this here and it says this here and, and I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to be mean, but, but I actually, what you were teaching wasn't right. And he, and he looks and he reads, he goes, praise God, I'll never preach that again. Thank you, sister. Thank you for showing me what's true. This man, look, guys, he could have said, look, you see everyone that's getting saved? Clearly I've got it right. No, he had a humility to say, man, God, I want to know you. And that was that last one. Look, be firm in your beliefs, but be humble enough to still learn. Be, be firm. We don't want to be whitewashed. We don't want to be like tossed with the wind. But we don't want to be so staunch that we can, we can never learn. We can never receive. And so, man, I, I just, I'm, I'm so excited for you guys. Like, there is always going to be this measure of faith. There is going to be limitations. But man, as we come in humility and trusting God, we're going to, and, and as we kind of really do fight for this, God's going to make himself known to us in a very real way. So what I'm going to do, I want you guys to get in groups of like no more than five, okay? This is the, it doesn't have to be your small group. You can do guys and girls. It doesn't matter. Three to five, okay? Minimum three, maximum five. Um, and I'm going to have you come up, and you're going to get a little thing. It's going to be your passage. And I want you guys 
to be together. It is 8.48, okay? So I'm going to give you all 20 minutes. So at 9.10, all right? At 9.10, I want you guys to come back in here. You can stay in here. If you want to go and work at a table out there, go for it. But at 9.10, all right? I want you to come back, and we're going to do one final little thing. But I'm going to give you this passage. Read it together. Start to apply these things. See what God wants to reveal to you then. Does that sound good? All right, get your group. Come grab it, and come back in here at 9.10. 9.10.